0: hi everybody welcome to episode 70 of the book cougars two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read i'm emily and i'm chris and we are at another 10th episode episode. so we have a giveaway Giveaway. i know i always feel like we need some like drum Drum music right yeah so we are giving away four books as a group so there'll be one winner of four books would you like me to just tell you what they are would you like to say chris go for it emily Reconstructing Amelia by Kimberly McCrate, Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. The Eating Instinct by Virginia Soul Smith. And The Flight Attendant by Chris Bohelian. I think that's a really cool combination of books. So that's two fiction,
1: two nonfiction. And hopefully whoever wins will enjoy all of them or have somebody in their family or friend circle who will. Yeah. And in order to win... You just need to be a subscriber to our newsletter, which you can um, sign up at com, And uh, we pick a random winner. Right. Yeah. Person- we do. This is what we do. Emily tells me how many people we have on our email list, so one through whatever. And then I use random.org to generate a number, and that number person
0: on our list is whoever wins. And when I send them the email, I suggest that they go play the lottery with that number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so thanks for being a uh, subscribers. Obviously, thank you so much for listening. Right. Um, but if you'd like to become a subscriber every 10th episode, we do give away a, a batch of books. And subscribers are automatically entered into that.
0: And as we've said, we don't sell your name or anything like that. And we also don't kill you with email. We send one newsletter a month. Right. And we also have a thank you to issue to a new Patreon donor named Wordsmith Lynn. What a great handle. Totally. I love that. So thank you, Lynn. We appreciate you. you and our other Patreon donors. And we did get a listener this week reach out who wants to just give us a donation directly because they don't want to use a subscription service. If you want to do that, feel free to just send us an email and I can send you our mailing address.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for, for that generosity.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate it and we use it.
1: Mm-hmm. So We do. Yes. Um, All right. So... Currently reading? yeah Are we just jumping in? Yeah. Okay. What All are right. you currently reading? So I'm currently reading The Street by Anne Petrie. It was first published in 1946. It is a novel about this woman um, who's now a single mom with a young boy in Harlem in in the 40s trying to make it. And um, Anne Petrie was an African-American writer, is maybe, I'm not sure if she is still of this earth or not. Mm. I didn't look, uh, I don't know that much about her other than the street is considered her masterpiece. A lot of people look at it as her, her uh, masterpiece. I'm enjoying it. I'm at about the halfway mark at this point. So it's interesting. There is a Connecticut connection because she leaves at one point she's married and she takes a job as a live in domestic in Lyme, Connecticut. So she takes the train from Grand Central to New Haven and stops in New Haven and, and gets on the train line that we are so familiar with. But it was interesting because the first stop, it was from New Haven to Old Saybrook was the first stop. Oh, interesting. So and they now, didn't used to stop at all the little towns yeah, on the way. maybe not. Yeah. But yeah, so now well, they
0: do. Unless that was just a fictional shorthand for the story's sake. Yeah, the only thing I know about that author is that she's not very well known, but people who have read her think, that she should be much mm-hmm. more well-known. Yeah,
1: right? I think so, too. I heard about this from our friend Ryan. He has a great Instagram feed. Yeah. Um, you can find him. It's it's my books, my shelf mm-hmm. on Instagram. Um, so he's where I heard about this book first. And I read, I, I got an interlibrary loan initially, and I read the first chapter, and I loved it. It's all about, so again, it's in the 40s, right? It's it's a pre-plastic world. So she's walking down the street and garbage is blowing everywhere, but it's mainly paper garbage. Oh, you know, newspapers and dance flyers and all of these things are flying everywhere and hitting people and getting stuck on them. And, they, and I just thought it was such a gripping opening. Mm. And then the family, the white family that she works for as a domestic in Connecticut, the father is in the paper industry. He makes toilet paper, Kleenex, things like that. Tissues, I should say, paper plates, whatnot. So there's a lot of imagery and metaphorical stuff about paper mm. throughout the novel so far. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so we'll see. I'm halfway through. I am liking it. I do question a choice that she made mm. and whether I think that choice is realistic or not. Yeah. So,
0: more to, come. more to come on that. I'm currently reading The Flat Share by Beth O'Leary. I got this through NetGalley and it doesn't come out until April 18th, which is not that far away. I'm really enjoying it. It's very funny. The premise of the story is two characters, Tiffy and Leon, and they're both having some financial hardship and decide to share, literally share a flat. It's a UK-based book, so a flat is an apartment and um, they work opposite shifts he's a night shift hospice nurse and she works for a small publishing house during the day mm-hmm. so they've literally never met the boyfriend of or i'm sorry the girlfriend of leon interviewed tiff tiffy to be the roommate because obviously it's a little odd for your boyfriend to share a bed with somebody <laughs> that's not you for some couples not for others And um, so she interviewed Tiffy. Tiffy never met Leon. They never come in contact with each other because their hours are so opposite. And the book is written as a series of kind of communications back and forth via post-it notes that they leave each other. (laughs) And it's very irreverent. And they're literally sharing a bed um, and a space. I'm really enjoying it. It's kind of just what the doctor ordered for me because it's been really gray and kind of dismal around here so i wanted a book that i could just laugh at very and cool it reminds me a lot of the um what are those famous british books with um that renee zellwerger starred in the movie adaptations oh of yeah them. Bridget jones's yeah, diary it's, it yeah. reminds me a little bit of that even yeah. though the story arc is different but yeah. um cool. so the flat chair by beth o'leary
1: so i'm also reading a classic think and grow rich by napoleon hill I'm reading the original 1937 unedited version. He's kind of considered the grandfather of the self-help movement. And this is one of the first self-help books. It sold millions of copies. And for those of you who don't know, um, haven't heard of Napoleon Hill, I'm not sure if he was an assistant or something for Andrew Carnegie.
0: Ah. But
1: Andrew Carnegie said to him, That it would be great if somebody would interview all the successful businessmen, people, men mainly at this time in American history, um, to see what the commonalities were in all of them. How did they become successful? So that's what this guy did, Napoleon Hill. He spent 20 years studying and talking with, interviewing, I should say, these highly successful men and politicians in American business and the list of people he interviewed it's like a who's who of American capitalism you know Henry Ford, William Wrigley John Wanamaker Teddy Roosevelt is in here Wilbur Wright J. Ogden Armour, George Eastman I mean I could go on and on Alexander Graham Bell all of these people and what was the commonality between all of them so so many of the principles that you see in in contemporary self-help books get their start in this book and others of this time period Mm -hmm. because it came out of the depression too right? which is another thing that I think made this book so popular is that during the depression obviously people were desperate for help and for answers and as they were coming out of the depression too they're looking for solutions and what can I do and it's really fascinating to be reading this book at the same time as I'm reading The Street because the the main character in there, she's constantly talking about money Mm. because she starts seeing money as a very different thing when she lives with that white family in Connecticut that's wealthy.
0: Mm.
1: So money, money, money. And I, I like the, and I've read this book before, I think and grow rich. I've read so many different like versions of it and different um, adaptations of it where sometimes they will take the ideas in here, but they'll give examples from contemporary Mm -hmm. Uh, you know business people successful people I think one of them that I read it had like Bill Gates in it and Tony Robbins and all these other well known people but I wanted to read the original Laura and her friend Chris Acton who I mentioned before who they read uh, a business book together Right. this is the one that they're reading and I said I want to read that again so it is fascinating you could also look at it as a historic artifact in and of itself of american capitalism and american thinking of that time period and i do have to warn people that this 1937 unedited edition does have the the racism and i'm sure the homophobia and attitudes of its time period Mm, yeah um but one of the things that he does quite interesting in in the introduction is He does use this example of this small little African-American girl standing up to this big white guy and getting what she wants. Mm. And then there's also an example of an Asian person talking about how you see things differently from your perspective. The attitude being that, you know, white Americans think that their eyes aren't, quote, normal eyes. Whereas, and, and then they think something different about Asian eyes. And there's the example of this Asian guy who comes over and he's like, what's up with your eyes? Right. Like of your course. eyes, you know? Yeah. So just that different perspective for now, or for, in our time period, we look at that and we think, oh my God, how racist, mm-hmm. how culturally insensitive. Right. But like he's trying to make points that weren't really made Yet. prior yeah. to that. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, so sure. if yeah. you are reading the original, you do have to look at it as, uh, being from its historic time and place, so that's think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill
0: very cool I want to read it
1: it's cool yeah I'll, I'll talk more about it after I finish it the next yeah. time. I'm not reading anything else, are you I'm not i'm I'm just um into these two So what did you just read wow i've I've um had some enjoyable reads recently I'll start with. The one I finished most recently, and that was Jonas Gordvine, by Zoraniel Hurston. I talked about this last time. Um, I did it as a buddy read with Sean, the Book Maniac, and some other folks using Voxer, which is this really cool app that you can use for free to talk with people all over the world. Um, are you really talking with them, or are you typing to them? You can talk. You can type. Mm -hmm. a text and you can also record voice so you can record these voice memos then that people can listen to and if you happen to be there when they're talking you can listen quote live like i mean you can't talk with them back and forth but you can listen as they're talking which is kind of neat um but jonah's gordvine it was originally published in 1934 and it was her first novel i know most listeners are probably familiar with their eyes were watching god This is a story of a guy named John Buddy Pearson, and he is a young man at the beginning of the story. His mom was 12 and slavery ended. The man who's his stepfather had been enslaved his entire life. He's older than his wife, and he is not John's father. So John Buddy is getting to be a young man. He's 16. The stepfather is resenting him more and more, is not being of his own flesh and blood plus John Buddy is mixed race he's a yellow African American as they use the term so he is pretty much kind of pushed out of his house he, he decides to leave and his mom says you know I want you to go to the Pearson plantation and go ask Mr. Pearson for a job he'll take good care of you so that was the plantation she had been on as a child and so John Buddy goes, and he gets a job. And there's just such a freshness to him in this novel. Like, you just can't help liking this guy. He is just, he seems like so natural and so uninhibited. And he's just soaking things up. Like, he gets to the plantation. He gets a job. Mr. Pearson, the, the white guy who is in charge now of the, I don't know if he calls it a plantation anymore, but... You know, he used to be the plantation so maybe owner. he just calls it a farm. Now or... he's a businessman, right. you know. Yeah. Um, so, but he gives John the ability to go to school and learn to read and write. And he catches on really quickly. So he gets more and more responsibilities. Everybody seems to like him. The girls are all hot for him. As Mr. Pearson says, like, he's a walking orgasm. That's <laughs> a direct quote. Um, <laughs> you know, it takes a turn. The novel takes a turn. Um And I didn't always like John Buddy, I have to say. Sean the Book Maniac, he had read a biography of Zora Neale Hurston, so provided some background to this story because it's very autobiographical. It's about Zora Neale Hurston's mom and dad, loosely. And, you know, it's that typical story, uh, stereotypical story, but I think, you know, all stereotypes have, you know, birth in real life of the man becoming successful and making something of himself because he has a good wife behind him Mm. kind of pushing him and steering him and advising him along the way. It's a really fascinating story. I highly recommend it. It is written in, in dialect. Neale Hurston was an anthropologist and she tried to really capture the speech patterns Mm. of these people. Um, they're originally in Alabama and they end up migrating to Florida into this all black community which is the community that Zora Neale Hurston often writes about. It's great because it's like a time capsule into history, into how these people actually spoke and what their life was like being within their own community and not having to constantly navigate the white world. Although there is some of that because, obviously, with Mr. Pearson and the plantation owner and everything. You know, a couple of the people who were doing the buddy read talked about how... It was either hard for them to read because of the dialect or it was very easy for them to read. Mm. And I felt like after the first page or two, it really flowed for me. But there was at least something on every page that made me stop and say, oh, wait, what? And I'd have to go back and reread it because I got hung up on something. Mm. But it is one of those novels that you just kind of flow through.
0: Oh, good.
2: I'm yeah. glad you liked it.
1: Yeah, I really did. So that's Jonah's Gordvine by Zora Neale Hurston. And it's, I don't want to just, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to give any spoilers because yeah, yeah. it was refreshing to read a novel that I didn't know anything yes. about. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time no, anymore, you know, no. especially when it
0: comes to an older novel. Very cool. Well, I finished Save Me the Plums, My Gourmet Year by Ruth Reichel. This is another book that I was able to get access to a little early from NetGalley. It's coming out April 2nd, so I'll try to remind people when that date approaches Ruth Reichel is known um, for writing many food memoirs, particularly I think her first one was called Tender is the Bone or Mm. Tender at the Bone. I can't remember one or the other. And um, she was the LA Times food critic, the New York Times food critic, and just knows a lot about food. She's an amazing food writer in general. And this particular memoir covers a period of time where she was the New York Times food critic and gets called up, so to speak, And invited to become the editor of Gourmet Magazine, which she has no experience as an editor. And she can't believe they're offering her the job and kind of says, you're crazy. I don't want this job. But then everyone around her says, you're crazy not to take the job, you know. So she ends up taking the job and the memoir covers the period of time where she's being asked and wooed to take it to when Gourmet actually shudders. In 2009, with its last issue in November of 2009, I really liked where she shines is when she writes about food. Mm -hmm. You know, she's just an incredible, she describes food in a very passionate way. And also the parts that I loved were getting kind of the behind the stage look at, or behind the scenes, I guess, look at the gourmet test kitchens, Mm -hmm. which were renowned in the industry for working and reworking recipes. And one of the things she really changed with Gourmet is she made the recipes more accessible. Historically, Gourmet recipes were amazing and the pictures were amazing, but they were incredibly difficult. Yeah. And so gourmands, you know, like would brag about cooking out of Gourmet magazine, you know, and during her tenure there... She really tried to make recipes more accessible Mm -hmm. and affordable, Mm -hmm. you know, ingredients that were affordable. So those were my two favorite parts of the book. And also there are some recipes, not very many. There's a handful of recipes, but they look really solid. And I look forward to, you know, doing some cooking of them. But and then also she has a way of weaving in some of her own personal experiences during this time period, particularly with her own son who had a medical issue as a baby and had to be on antibiotic most of his life until his, I think, late teens, which really affected his appetite. I mean, think about, you know, the times you've been on antibiotic. Yeah. You can get a really upset stomach and things. So here she was, like this person who could be taking her son to all the best restaurants in New York, and he didn't really have much of an appetite. And then later, as he becomes an adult in this, memoir he has a ravenous big six foot tall boy appetite you know so it's kind of fun to bear witness to that (laughs) change as well the part of the book that i struggled with was she's a bit of a name dropper Mm -hmm. of course she runs in those circles yeah and also just the cast of characters in and out as editors for her and stuff really kind of got a little muddled in my brain And she also chooses to describe people kind of the way she describes food. And there were times when I was like, ooh, wow, I can't believe you just said that about that person. Yeah. But but overall, I really enjoyed it. And if you're a fan of Ruth Reichel, I think this will be another enjoyable memoir. Very
1: cool. Yeah. I have a question to ask, and I don't mean this to come out snarky at all, but Gourmet Magazine shuddered. Mm Mm-hmm. Did that happen like during her tenure? Was she the last editor of it? She was. She, she was, was the last editor. So, do yeah. you think the changes she made contributed to it wrapping up, or no. was it just industry wide? I think it was the
0: industry. It was Conde Conde Nast, or is it Cond Nast? I think it's Conde Nast. Conde Nast. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> so, and and it. I can't remember that. I think the the big head honcho's name is Sai or something. I think, and he had bought this huge office tower in Times Square Mm -hmm. and all of the magazines that are under Condé Nast were then headquartered there and he was just a he just spent money with abandon and that was one of the things that she writes about in the memoir is you know like she got a uh, clothing allowance with this job (laughs) She got a car, you know, like people would pick her up and drive her to work and which she was a subway taker, which she continued to take a subway Mm -hmm. until she had to go to this fancy affair. And when the driver picks her up, you know, he said, you know, like you kind of had to have a bad rep in the Condé Nast family of drivers because you never use a driver. And it helps the drivers to have to be used, you know. So, but to her it was like a driver. That's ridiculous. I take the subway, you know. Right. Well, yeah,
1: because you actually get there fast. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so,
0: um, I think it was mostly more. It had to do with just the spending of money, and it happened right after two thousand and eight. Right when we had this big financial crisis and people weren't buying magazines. There was also a change over into, you know, online reading Mm -hmm. and Epicurious for those people who get recipes online, Epicurious was the original online recipe organization that was via Condé Nast, but it wasn't through Gourmet. And that's one of the things she talks about is she had very early on in the world of the internet, Gone to Cy Sai and said, "I think we need to have an online presence." And he had said, "No, no, no, no." Mm. And then eventually, in two thousand and eight, when he says yes, it's kind of too late. Right. And then there's this big argument over. Well, Epicurious has first rights to these recipes, and she's saying these are gourmet recipes. That doesn't make sense, you know. Yeah. So there was a little online war, and it was a little too late at that point.
1: Yeah, that's bad. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of what happened to Borders books because really? initially Borders had. Amazon do online fulfillment for them. Oh, Which, at the time, it made sense at the time.
0: Right. But now,
1: looking back, you think, how ridiculous yeah. was that decision? Oops. Yes. Yeah.
0: So. Well, and, I mean, it was like the wild, wild west. Nobody knew what the internet was yeah. going to do.
1: Well, and the know? idea was, you know what? I know Borders. they thought... You know, Amazon does it well. Like, mm-hmm. let's outsource this, and you know they didn't realize that while having our and they just came to having their own website much too late. Yeah,
0: yeah. But, well, I mean, I, so I think a lot of it was just business decisions. That, to answer your question, were out of her hands, mm-hmm. and in the the way she tells the story, is they all get called in, her included to this office and they're told the magazine's shuttering, go home. Mm-hmm. And they had an issue ready to print and everything that never got printed. Oh my gosh. And yeah, so I think it was one of those where it was just like we have to do this now.
1: Yeah.
0: Goodbye. <laughs> so so I enjoyed it. I really did um other than, you know, my constant battle with names, which yeah. I think is just really me more than anything else. So, again, it's called Save Me the Plums, My Gourmet Year by Ruth Reichel. Um, the other book I just read finished
1: was Wild Bill, the true story of the American Frontier's first gunfighter by Tom Clavin. So I read two very different books Yeah. this last time. So, no, and I thought that was
0: nonfiction.
1: This is nonfiction. Okay. Yeah, it's nonfiction. And so I didn't know much about Wild Bill. And I have to say... A little bit of background about myself. I loved watching westerns when I was a kid, but I was that kid who rooted for the horses. And then That's great. the Indians. Yeah. And then maybe the pioneers and the homesteaders, like, in that <laughs> order. I really used to get confused between Wild Bill and Buffalo Bill, Clamity Jane, like, some of these people, I mean, obviously Clamity Jane, I know she was a woman and not Wild Bill, but Wild Bill, Buffalo Bill, they, I, sometimes equated them as being the same person, but they were not. Wild Bill was a guy who was born in Illinois, which I didn't know, but I came across the statue of his head one day in Illinois. Right. Laura and I would do these road trips and we came across and we're like, Huh, that interest that's interesting. So he was actually born in Illinois. His family had a settlement there. And you know, you think this is just pre Civil War. And the West was really, you know, Illinois, Missouri. It wasn't until after the Civil War that, like, Kansas and Nebraska became really opened up to settlement. James was his first name, James Hickok. He was one of those guys who was in the right place at the right time, I guess is a good way to say it. He did serve in the Civil War as a spy. He dressed Mm. as a Confederate sometimes. You know, he was out west before that. He and his brother had gone to Missouri. They were looking to, to buy a homestead. He actually ended up spending a lot of time in Kansas, which before the Civil War, Kansas had a reputation of bloody Kansas for good reason. And for those of you who don't know the American history, before the Civil War, when a new state was made, the argument was, what is it going to be a slave state or a free state? And how do we balance this? A lot of people said we should not have any more slave states. They should all be free states. So Kansas and Nebraska, it was kind of like a compromise that Kansas would be a slave state and Nebraska wouldn't be. But there was so much violence in Kansas over this issue with, I mean, talk about the Wild West. I mean, this is the Wild West. You know, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota. I think sometimes when people think of the Wild West, they think of like, Maybe like Nevada or something, but it's not. Like that time period when you think of gunfighters and stuff, it was Kansas, Nebraska. So a well, lot of, and
0: I don't want to get too political, but I mean, isn't part of that because that's where a lot of Native Americans were too, and they were trying to take lands and settle lands that were already settled in a certain yeah, way, Yeah, absolutely, right, yeah, right. yeah because,
1: okay. you know, after the Civil War... Soldiers were given chunks of land, right, and anybody could kind of just go out there and stake their territory. You know, one of the points mentioned here was like people would just use a whiskey bottle to mark their land, their corners. Um, So it wasn't until though after the Civil War that the really the eradication of Native American lands really sped up and became ultra violent. Right, and this is definitely a popular history book. One of my frustrations with reading it was, like, there are no footnotes. Okay, is this real? Like, wh- is this documented, that what right. you're telling me here? So that was a little frustrating, but I kind of realized, okay, this is popular history. It's not an academic history book mm-hmm. w- with footnotes. Or It is very much about Wild Bill and his time from his perspective. Okay. It's not giving a wide picture of the time period, and so I had to keep reminding myself when I was reading it that he is looking at Wild Bill and Wild Bill's life, right? period. And he's trying to take a lot of these legends about him because there were thousands of stories written about him, you know, dime novels about these adventures of the Great Plainsmen because he then was a guide helping to lead people around the territory that wasn't, quote, settled yet. Um, He was a plainsman and a guide, and he was also a sheriff for a while. He did spend time as a law enforcement officer. So he had a really crazy life like Mm -hmm. that you know talk about living in the wild west yeah he was a gambler and later in life that's how he made his living Mm -hmm. and it was really kind of sad because by the time he was in his 30s he started losing his eyesight he started having vision problems which if you're a gunfighter he got the reputation of being the fastest draw and he was a quick draw and really good with his guns, but when he started having vision problems, he,
0: he had a, a different reputation, problem, right? He shoots everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like I'm not giving this book justice. Like, I enjoyed reading it. I don't mean to sound like it's, it was a bad book, but I I just am used to reading books and bi- uh, biographies or histories that have more documentation. Well, you're a history book, so you want it to be. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, but this was a great look at the guy's life. And, I mean, I can't imagine the life that he lived. And then, being known as the fastest draw in the West, everybody then is looking at you to make a name for themselves to be the one that is faster. You you know, so the last years of his life were not relaxed (laughs) By, (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. But I think I mentioned in the last episode that the author, Tom Clavin, he's written many other books... I think uh, Dodge City is another Western book that a lot of people have spoke highly of. So for my first look into the life of Wild Bill, I would recommend this. If if you don't know jack about Wild Bill, it would be a good book to start with. Great. If you like Westerns, it might give you some good context and background and everything. Good. Yeah. So Wild
0: Bill, that's by Tom Clavin. Well, I finished a book that I've, been thinking a lot about about how am I going to talk about this on the podcast. It's called Shadow Daughter, a Memoir of Estrangement by Harriet Brown. This is a it's a it's a memoir and Harriet Brown is estranged from her mother. And the book is really about adult estrangement. And it can be estrangement from your parents, estrangement from your siblings, estrangement from your entire family. Mm -hmm. And it's a really tricky subject and part of what makes it tricky is that there's a lot of judgment around adult estrangement because people feel like your parents job in this world is to bring you into the world to feed you to clothe you so that you become an adult and then your job as a child is to be thankful for that and to always be grateful And have them in your life and care for them as they get older. And what's interesting about that judgment is that that judgment's in place even if you have abusive parents, you know, typically. There's just always shock and awe if someone mentions that they're estranged from their parents or their family, really, in general. Mm -hmm. And um, I have some personal experience with this. So I really wanted to read a book. Mostly because it helps offer some validation. Mm-hmm. Because you don't typically get it out in the in the real world. Yeah. And, um, you know, particularly over the holidays, you know, there's a lot of family-centric advertising and family-centric expectations. Mm-hmm. And so when you have some estrangement in your family, it makes for difficult times. Yeah. You know?
1: Absolutely. And it's always, I mean, the judgment that I've always seen is against the person who has made... I think quite often the healthy decision
0: <laughs> right.
1: to remove themselves, and uh, the judgment is there's something wrong with them.
0: Absolutely. And not
1: with the family, because look how great that family is.
0: Right. Or just, it's not even a, a, a necessarily going to that level of looking at the family dynamic. It's just, mm-hmm. you just don't do it. You don't do it's it. It's not and something that you you're do. you're going
1: to regret it. Right. You know, like what you're going to wake up one day and everybody's going to be a yeah, different human right. being or something. Right. And yeah.
0: Well, and I also think there's just a tendency to put your own experience on top of other people's. So when you do have a close relationship with your family or the, the idiosyncrasies of your particular family members are easily forgivable, it's hard to imagine that someone would go so far as to be estranged from their family, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, so it was a really important book for me to read. I thought she did a really good job of interviewing all different kinds of people. And one of the things she really talks about is that um, the book opens with her mother having just died. And there's a lot of people, when you're estranged from a family member, the, the thing that people always want to talk to you about is you better figure this out before they die or you're going to be regretful or you're never going to get over it after they die or something. And she chose not to see her mother before she died. And it was actually a really good decision for her. And so the memoir opens with that. You know, she's taking a hike with her husband and her two daughters and finds that her mother has died. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually very difficult, but also very cathartic. So I thought she did a good job of of talking about that, talking to different people about different kinds of estrangements that they've had in their lives. She also really talked about how most estrangement, like final, like typically if you're estranged uh, as an adult from your family, there have been periods of estrangement in your past, you know, like, oh, I didn't speak to my father for a year or during my teenage years, I wasn't in contact with my mother and things like that. But that usually there's kind of a straw that breaks the camel's back
1: mm.
0: event that happens where someone decides, as you mentioned, for their health, mm-hmm. the estrangement needs to happen permanently or in a more long term manner. Yeah. So she talks a little bit about that, too, which is validating, because if you turn around and look at your past and look at how things develop, it kind of gives you a, a clearer picture of how things have turned out the way they have. Yeah. You know, Mm-hmm. So to me, the moral of the story is to try not to judge other people's lives. Right. You know, I really try to do that just from some of my own life experience. Mm-hmm. But that family, you, you know, the image of the happy family and the, the whole family um, is a really hard one to to face. Yeah. So.
1: Right. Absolutely. And especially when you do have some good memories, like it, it's very confusing.
0: But I really appreciate you talking about it because oh, I know it's not easy. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Well, and it's also, you know, the, the main thing also is that you want it to be different. Right. You know, I would much prefer things to look different. And so that's the other thing that's hard then when there's judgment is, you know, it's like this isn't necessarily something of my choosing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to have a better understanding of estrangement or you have some of that in your own life. It is, I think it was a helpful book to read, Shadow Daughter, A Memoir of Estrangement. Mm -hmm. Actually, I want to say one other thing before I move on. The other thing about estrangement is it obviously affects the other people in your family. Mm -hmm. Um, And the one thing that does happen in this memoir is once her mother passes away, she has a much improved and healing relationship with her father. So that was an interesting aspect of it. Yeah. Okay, oh, moving on. Right.
1: Well, you know, talk about not judging. Like, I, even when I'm reading novels these days, I'm really trying to look at myself and not judge the other characters. Because, like I mentioned, mm-hmm. with the street that I'm reading mm-hmm. right now and a decision that the main character makes, I'm like, you're totally, like, laying your own stuff on her. Like, that's not a decision you would make. Uh, but it's a decision she made in this novel, Right. the character. And yeah. you just need to
0: interesting get
1: your own judgment off of it for now
0: well that's interesting to be in touch with that because as we read we do read through the lens of our own life experience Mm -hmm. you know so
1: well and especially that here she is an african-american woman in 1940s single mom she's done a lot to put herself through school to get to you know a certain economic level of employment but you know i'm a white woman living in the year 2019 and it's a different world yeah i'm in a different world culture yeah. sure. situation age yeah. gender yep. sexual orientation i guess we're the same gender but different sexual orientation you know right. like yeah so like it is interesting it's just when i catch myself judging a literary character right. i kind of like pause and right. say like okay step back step back <laughs> like this does get back to the argument of does reading fiction make you a more compassionate person? Right, empathy. Empathy,
0: right? Yeah. And I think it does. i I read two more books. Gosh, well, well it was roll on it Emily, was, fine roll on. <laughs> it was cold and snowy, and I was by myself. <laughs> and I I went on a trip, and I came back with the plague. Yes. I was so sick, so I was in bed doing a lot of reading. All right, tell um, us about it. I also finished *The Golden Child* by Claire Adam. This is uh, the I think it's the second. Am I right about that? Um, book in Sarah Jessica Parker's SJP for Ho- Hogarth imprint. Um, it's a debut novel by Claire Adam, and it takes place in Trinidad, hmm. which I have to admit, in the I started reading it, and Trinidad is such a character in the book. I had to put the book down and get out a map and say, "Okay, where are we?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't know where Trinidad was located geographically. Um, and it's about uh. Twins that are born, Peter and Paul are their names, and Peter is considered the golden child of the novel's name, and Paul was born um, and was deprived of oxygen, is considered the slow child. They even use the term, which I know is not politically correct now, retarded. And um, the opening scene of the book is from their father Clyde's point of view and he is searching for Paul who has gone missing. And the Trinidad, the picture of Trinidad that Claire paints and she is, the author is from Trinidad, is of it not being the safest place. So their home is under a locked gate and there's dogs kind of rottweilers and dogs like that and you know people who are mean-spirited that the children and the mother were robbed at gunpoint in the house Mm -hmm. at one point so when the child goes missing it's a concern as any concern one would be concerned of a child going missing but also of the violence that's available to him outside of their home yeah and um, so that you, you open the book from that point of view. But then the, the book starts to take different point of views. The two boys, Peter and Paul, um, a teacher that they come in contact with at a school and some other characters. And it goes back in time and forth and back and forth. Okay. And eventually, I don't want to give any spoilers because it definitely has, there's like this pending doom in the book. And eventually, there is a, for those of you who have read Sophie's Choice, mm-hmm. there's a choice that the father Clyde has to make uh, regarding these two boys. That's really difficult. Boy. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it was a real page turner. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really enjoying reading it because of this sense of pending doom. And I have to say it was really funny because... I was a little crabby this past weekend while I was reading it, and my gentleman caller was here, and we were both sitting next to each other reading, and he said, how's your book? And I said, eh, I'll be glad when it's done, <laughs> and he turned to me and said, is it a book you have to read? You know, like he was wondering if it was our next read-along or something, and I said, no, and he said, well, then why are you reading it? And I said, because I want to see what happens, yeah. because it was definitely one of those books. I mean, the book opens with a kid that's lost, right? Mm-hmm. You want to know what happens. And he said, you could read the ending and see what happens, which to me is like, never would I do that, even though Jim and many other people I know do that. When they start a book, they read the ending, which oh. is mind-boggling to me. And I turned to him and said, I would never read the ending. Yeah. And he turned to me and said, do you want me to read it for you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, in my <laughs> crabbiness, but... So I finished it and I was ultimately glad that I read it because I really felt like I got to take a trip to Trinidad and understand that culture a little bit more and mm-hmm. it was very well written. So I'm curious to see what Claire Adam writes next, so. The Golden Child. And then I also read More Than Words by Joel Santopolo. I was really excited to get this book because it just came out and I was able to get it at the library. She is someone that I had seen at RJ last year, I think, with a book called The Light We Lost. And this book, More Than Words, takes place from the point of view of a young woman who's an heiress to a hotel fortune in New York City. Her father is dying of cancer, and um, she is currently a writer, a speech writer for someone who is campaigning to be mayor of New York City. Mm-hmm. And there's an understanding that, you know, once her father passes away, she'll be done with her career and her new career will be as the new CEO or, you know, whatever of the, of the hotel chain okay. that they own in New York City. And she's dating the kid that is the son of the father's best friends who work for the hotel. So she's doing everything in her life that's expected of her. Okay. But having a lot of feelings that that's not what she wants to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with a lot of people. Once her father passes away, then she can look at her life differently and make different decisions for herself. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much a love story because she decides to make some different decisions about her love life, the way she looks and dresses and everything. There's also the fun little thread of a campaign, a mayoral campaign taking place at the same time. It was a really light read. Like her other book, the chapters are super short. So I found myself saying, oh, I'll just read one more chapter. Yeah. Just, just one more chapter. <laughs> one more chapter. And I really had to play a game with myself because I've had a lot of work to do, particularly catching up from being sick of, okay, if you work for two hours, you can read for 15 minutes. So I was doing <laughs> a lot of that with this book. So um, it was a really light, fun read. More Than Words by Jill Santapolo. All right, that's all the reading I did. All right. So on to biblio adventures. Yeah,
1: you had a big one without me. I, I didn't know, get to go. I missed you. It's so <laughs> sad to see Roxanne Gay without you because oh. we saw her a couple years ago at the 92nd Street Y. Yeah. And we sat in the front row at mm-hmm. that one because no one was up there. We're like, oh my God, there's seats up front. Let's go. Remember, yeah. we sat down. Yeah. And we're like... This is sweet. Yes. Didn't have that experience this time. Roxanne Gay was at Yale in conversation with Claudine Rankin, who is a poet and author. Her name didn't hit me until they said the title of her book, which is Citizen, an American lyric, that was really popular and won some awards and stuff just last year or the year before. I think it was like a new uh, one book, one New Haven type reading. Yeah. So it was in this wonderful auditorium. Building that sat over 400 people. The event started at seven, and I saw that they posted on Facebook earlier in the day that they were going to open the doors at 6:45. And I'm like, okay, I'd never been to that auditorium, but I'm thinking, like, what are they thinking? Like, you know, I was meeting up with some other friends. Sarah had said she was going to get there by 6:15, so okay, I think I could get there by 6:30. So. I got there. The doors were already open, and it was so bizarre because they had people come up the stairs to get in line, and then the line snaked down but they so they opened the doors to that, but then they didn't open the doors to the auditorium until
0: someone I don't know needs when. to think about crowd well, control <laughs> yeah, so
1: I actually Sarah and I and then our friend Valerie came we got the last teeny tiny corner of standing room in the balcony of this place. And it does seat over 400 people packed. So they had video satellites in other rooms. And Roxanne Gay, as you saw her tweet, like people always underestimate the crowd. And she always tells people, but they don't listen to her. Yeah, It was a great talk though. I mean, it was kind of fun to be back up in there in the corner because I did have a great view of her. On the stage and could hear everything really well. They were mic'd and everything. But it was great to see the audience. Mm. You know, just tons of diversity in the audience. People were riveted on her every word. Both of them. I mean, Claudia Rankin is very popular in New Haven and in the Yale community. People were just riveted. And it was so cool.
0: And kudos that. to Yale, too, for keeping it a free event. I mean, yeah. I think that's wonderful because it really does open it up to yeah. everybody being able to go. And I think mm-hmm. Roxanne Gay, she does a lot of ticketed events now, mm-hmm. but I think she really is committed to doing some of those free events as well. Yeah.
1: So the conversation was really great. It started with uh, wonderful introductions, and then Roxanne read a piece of writing that she'd written recently about having the weight loss surgery. And then the two of them sat on stage having a great conversation. And then they took some questions from the audience as well. People could come up and ask their question, but they also had email in questions, probably for the folks who were in the video streaming section. Um, But a lot of the questions were about writing and trauma. Mm.
0: Because
1: Roxane Gay is at Yale teaching a workshop on trauma writing and how to write trauma in a way that doesn't re-traumatize yourself or traumatize the reader she talked a bit about how that workshop it was by application they had to submit a statement of why they wanted to take the class and she said people who wrote and said i want to write about my trauma because i know it's going to be helpful for me it's going to be cathartic and she's like i dismissed all of those i had to reject them she said because writing about trauma it's not about having that experience of a cathartic experience. Like, that is what you have in therapy. Like, right. You need to go to therapy first to deal with your trauma, and then you can write about it. You know, because she said, you don't want to harm yourself again, and you, you need to process it. You need professional help right. to deal with your trauma. She's also not interested in the, the standard redemptive stream of trauma writing that is, you know, I went through this horrific experience, but... Now I've come out a better person, right. and it taught me this. And she's like, you know, that's kind of bullshit. Mm-hmm. That is, and it does it's a kind of like a biblical, right, uh, very Christian type way of looking at the world that you've mm-hmm. gone through this horrid thing. But because she's like, and people say to her, yeah, but you know, you wouldn't be who you are. If, these, if this hadn't happened to you. And she's like, fuck that. She's like, then I wouldn't have been spending the last, you know, however many years of my life figuring out who I am and who I could be if it hadn't have been for that
0: trauma. Right, I could just be the person I was yeah. put on the earth to be. That's yeah. another way to look at it. Yeah. Right, you know, so yeah. I thought, you yeah. know, she's so fascinating. She's so direct. She's also just smart. I mean, she has a way of turning things and looking at them from a different angle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She really does. talked about how often women and people of color and gay people are often only looked at as experts if they're talking about their own experience. Mm. So she was saying, to a response to a question that somebody asked, is that you don't always have to put your own experience in a piece of nonfiction. You can be an expert on whatever it is you're working on or writing about, you know, if you have been doing your work and researching right. it, to not put yourself in there. You know, mm. but so often the expectation is that you do, because then mm. somehow that's going to make you an expert or validate right. the work.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: she's like, "We don't need to do that." And the more women, people of color, and gays can not do that, the more we'll be respected in and for ourselves, right. and not for your intellect. representing yeah. some category. Right. So fascinating. One of the one of the questions somebody asked. She prefaced it by saying, "You know, my dad thinks." feminism is a cult and Roxanne <laughs> says she's like yeah it is a cult of awesome <laughs> so of course everybody cheered so it's such a great conversation I could just listen to her talk forever oh, because yeah. I mean she really really listens well yes and she thoroughly answers people's questions yep which is not easy to do mm-hmm. when you're sitting in front of 400 people yeah
0: and um, so many of them are from a very personal place too.
1: yeah absolutely they yeah. are yeah she did announce that she is doing another conversation with some riders who are coming in about trauma riding. And that is March 5th. Yes, I have that on our 7 upcoming PM. adventures. Yeah, so yeah. that's going to be um, a panel on actually riding trauma.
0: At Yale. Yeah.
1: At Yale. And since she announced it, hopefully they're going to keep it open to the public and find a more appropriate place Space, to, to yeah. place to put it. I'm yeah. just going to
0: camp out at 8 in the morning. That's my plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm very sorry I missed it. I was thrilled that you were there. Um, I was trying to race from the airport to get there, but then I came home with the plague and needed to just go to bed when I got home because I had a fever. So, yeah, good times. So speaking of the plague, because I was sick, I did not go anywhere for Biblio Adventures but my chair and the television. But I did watch (laughs) The Sisters Brothers, which is just out on DVD. I don't know that it's streaming anywhere. I think you have to just buy the DVD. And that's based on the novel by Patrick DeWitt of the same name. It's a Western, but a very somewhat irreverent Western based on the, the brothers by the name Sisters. Yeah. So their last name is Sisters. And it's played um, by John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix. And then um, there's some other guest characters, very good cast. And it stuck very close to the book, I thought. There mm-hmm. were a few places where it diverged. I did have a few moments of wondering if someone hadn't read the book, if they would get the full understanding of the characters. I'm not sure that the movie developed the characters as well as the book did, okay. which is very typical. Yeah. Um, but it was thoroughly entertaining. That's I definitely cool. enjoyed it. And then I also started the series Killing Eve. Which Sandra Oh just won an Emmy for her performance in that. Yeah, I love her. And it's a BBC show. I'm streaming it on one of the, I think it might be Amazon or Hulu or Netflix, one of those. And it's based on the Luke Jennings Codename Villanelle novella series. It's a little dark for Emily. (laughs) I'm just talking about myself in the third person. <laughs> um, I don't usually watch blood and gut stuff so much, but it's about a woman who is an investigator for MI5. She's an American, though, and how she ended up in Britain is a little unclear to me. But okay. um, And they're chasing a serial... She's not, she's not really a serial killer. She's a hired killer. Okay. She's chasing a hired killer.
1: An assassin. An
0: assassin. And the acting is really brilliant, and the stories are interesting. All right. But I'm... We'll see if I stick with it because it's a little gory, but that's Killing Eve and I'm pretty sure it's on the first season and it's one of those, you know, the British seasons aren't very long, like six or eight episodes or something.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And then the other one I'm watching was mentioned to me by Aunt Ellen. It's called The Durrells in Corfu Hmm. and it's a masterpiece PBS series and it's a six part adaptation of Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals was the book, and it's it has a couple sequels, I guess. And it's about this woman, Larissa Durrell, who's in Bournemouth. I don't know if that's how you say it. One of our British friends might have to correct me on that. And she has all these children, and she decides to move them because of financial hardship to the Greek Isle of Corfu. And I have to say, the thing that's nice about the series is it's bright and sunny because they're in Greece, you know? So for those of you who are living in a wintry climate right now, it is kind of a breath of fresh air in that way. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Downton Abbey, not in storyline or, you know, them living in a big castle or anything like that, but just the family dynamic and the cast of characters and things like that. So, so I'm very much at the beginning of both of those series, but, Enjoyed them, Very you cool. know, in my feverish state. Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, I've been watching a little bit more of season three of Man in the High Castle. Oh, yeah. Which is based on a novel. Um, and I still haven't read the novel. I don't remember who wrote the novel. Yeah, I don't I, don't, I know I had it at one yeah. point.
0: We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So, upcoming adventures...
1: Well, there is one that caught my eye. Pam Houston is going to be at R.J. Julia in Madison on February 25th at 6 p.m. I'd be interested in seeing her. Um, I read, I've only read one of her books. And I think it was probably Cowboys Are My Weakness, a collection of short stories. I read it when I was mm-hmm. in grad school. And I remember some, uh, the teacher loved it. Obviously, she chose it to teach mm-hmm. for whatever reason she did. And I just remember not being very kind all the time in conversations (laughs) because some of the other students we didn't have the same love of you know we thought there were some problems with things Um, but you know she's I haven't read anything else by Pam Houston since then but I often think about rereading that Mm. now that I have a little bit more age and compassion Yeah. You know how it is when you can get influenced when you're reading with a group and everything. And when you're young and think
0: you know everything, too.
1: Oh, my God. I knew I was, what, 25, and I knew absolutely everything.
0: Yeah. I was starting to have doubts, but, you know, not many. (laughs) 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 Well, I'm hoping this coming week to get to Yale, because Min Jin Lee is coming for a moment, I think on Monday, Monday or Tuesday. So I'm hoping to go. She's going to be in the same room that Michael Chabon was yeah, in. So. I plan on tagging along yeah, for good. sure. Yay. I don't want to miss men. I know. And then um, one of my holiday gifts to my gentleman caller was to go on February 23rd to Speak Up, Infinity Hall in Hartford. And Speak Up Storytelling is Matthew Dix, the author of several novels, I think four novels, and his wife, Alicia Dix. This is their storytelling enterprise, and it's always a fun evening of funny things. And this one, the theme of the stories for this one is crazy little thing called love, so kind of a fun one to have around cool. Valentine's Day. Yeah. And then um, we already mentioned it, but I'm hoping also to get to see Roxane Gay this time yeah, on March. March 5th yeah. at Yale again.
1: So let's jump into upcoming reads. Okay. Because one of them that I'll be upcoming reads is Roxane Gay's novel, An Untamed State, which just came on my way over here. Yeah, Grabbed it out of the mailbox. I'm so, I'd love to ask her, you know, how much her, because she did say in her conversation that she thinks of herself as a fiction writer, mm-hmm. but everybody always wants to talk about her nonfiction. And I'm just wondering now with this workshop that she's doing and the thinking she's doing about writing about trauma like how has her writing changed mm-hmm. and yeah. it's kind of a lame question to ask a writer like well how would your novel have been, di- been different because right. you know I've heard writers say like I'll now that I know so much more and I've lived so much more and I've processed things so much more I would have written a quite different novel right but yeah. but it's out there but it's out there yeah. and it is it is of that age yeah I think about this song, uh, Willie Nelson's My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys. Mm -hmm. And there's a line, Picking up hookers instead of my pen, I let the words of my youth slip away. Mm. And that line has always struck me. And just the importance of, if you're a writer, writing at all, all ages of your life. Yeah. Because you do write very different things. And you can think you think like you did when you're 25, when you're 50. But really not. Yeah. You know, because I don't know if, like, people who keep journals, when I go back and look at some of my older journals, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Like, so judgmental. So clueless. (laughs) Or on the other hand, like, oh, you poor thing. Like, you didn't notice these other things around you. Right. You know. So it is a fascinating idea to think about what you write when Mm -hmm. in your life, I think.
0: Yeah, I don't know what she would say about An Untamed State, which is her, you know, work of fiction. But I know with Hunger, her memoir that came out, was it the year before last or maybe last year? even? Two years, yeah, I think. Um, that, it, you know, it was the time for her to write that book. Right. And it really, if you do follow her, which I have admitted that I stalk her slightly on all of her social media, you know, she's she's gone through weight loss surgery. She's faced a lot of things in her life. Um, because of writing Hunger, I think, I shouldn't say because of, I think Hunger helped her to be able to move forward in certain aspects of her life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if she would say the same thing about writing An Untamed State. I do know she's back in the world of An Untamed State because it's being made into a movie, and I think she's helping with the screenplay. So, Um, And I think she's writing a lot of fiction through television now, which is interesting, because she does write a lot of essays, which of course is Nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, maybe we'll find her on Yale campus well, and yeah. we'll be able to ask her some of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have um, Monsoon Mansion, a memoir by Sunel Barnes on my upcoming reads. And this is um, a, a, a memoir that came to my attention through Goodreads and one of our listeners, Tony. Hmm. But Antonia, who goes by Tony. And then I also have one that this author actually reached out to us directly, The Crate, A Story of War, a Murder, and Justice by Deborah Vadis-Leveson. So I'd like to crack the binding, however you call that. I have an e-reader version of it. I'd like to flip the uh, page
1: of that one. (laughs) Cool. I had uh, two library books that I picked up recently. That one, can you ever forgive me? By Lee Israel, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, that was the Melissa McCarthy movie version that we we both saw, um, and and it's a small little yeah, book. Yeah, surprisingly, it's totally surprised me. This is the mov- movie version, and it is only it's 129 pages, including the acknowledgments. Hmm. I will read through that, and then the other book. Really, um, I saw this advertised or mentioned in. Um, some online it might have been like shelf awareness Uh, Louis L'Amour's first novel is being published for the first time his first, it was unpublished manuscript Ah. and it's written I guess his son must have edited a bit, uh, Beau L'Amour he manages his father's estate now Mm -hmm. yeah so he's looking at a lot of his father's unpublished manuscripts and doing things with them and this is a novel called No Traveler Returns Mm. which is about a ship it's an ocean adventure and louis Lemoore worked as a merchant marine for a while when he was a young man
0: so So. it'll be interesting to see if it's good yeah (laughs) sometimes i think people dig up um Old manuscripts, and it's wonderful, and it's, you know, such an amazing gift to readers, especially fans who thought uh, they'll never get to read something new now that someone's passed away. Yeah. But also sometimes I think you're like, oh, yeah, this one probably should have stayed. Right. Well, you never know, though. I mean, this one, it was written between, he said,
1: 1938 and 1942. Okay. A novel about a ship, and who knows? Like, if it didn't involve war, it might not have had a place because – during the war, after the war, when a lot of veterans were starting to put out novels and stuff, maybe just didn't have a home in that right, way in, in right, Westerns right, or what he, he found
0: sold better. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. I'll be interested to see what you think of it. Yeah.
1: And then I'll be reading the first uh, Willa Cather short story for the Willa Cather short story project, which is uh, Flavia and her artists.
0: And that I will put a link in the show notes Mm -hmm. to Chris's blog page that has her short story read-along that's going to be taking place all of 2019. Yeah. So, yeah, and
1: reading that one, I'll put my post up about that on February 27th, if anybody wants, who's reading along, wants to comment on that and have a conversation.
0: Great. And reminder that we have a giveaway. So if you'd like to enter our newsletter, please do. And coming up now, we have an author spotlight with Virginia Soul Smith author of The Eating Instinct, Food, Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. So we're here today talking to Virginia Sol Smith about her new book, The Eating Instinct, Food, Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Virginia is a Guilford native, Guilford, Connecticut. (laughs) Which is where we're recording from. Which is where we record, yeah. Yeah, So it's exciting to have you both because we loved your book, but also because you're from, from these parts.
2: Hello, my hometown. (laughs) It's wonderful (laughs) to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Our pleasure. So, Virginia, I thought it'd be
0: nice if you start by just kind of telling us a little bit about the genesis of how you came to write the book.
2: Sure. So, you know, for most of my career, I've been a journalist who's focused on women's health, and I've written a lot about women and our bodies and food and weight Mostly, I was doing that writing for women's magazines, though, which meant I was writing a lot of how to lose weight, how to get your bikini body, you know, all these kind of diety stories that we all know so well from that media, and the whole time I was doing it, I always felt pretty deeply conflicted about it, to be honest with you, Um, you know, I could see that we were giving all this advice and yet hearing from readers saying, I'm so frustrated with food. I don't trust my body. You know, I could see it wasn't really working for anyone, but I just kept thinking, well, you know, we just haven't found the right plan yet. And once we find the right diet, you know, <laughs> once we find the right approach we can, you know, this one's clearly wrong. This one's clearly a crash diet, but this sounds more like a lifestyle plan. That sounds better. You know? And so I was in that in that loop with it for a really long time thinking I just was finally finding the right thing. And then, You know, and this was the mid 2000s. So, this was when things like Michael Pollan's Omnivore Dilemma was really big. You know, we were starting to shift from a more diet capital D attitude about dieting to more of this wellness culture, whole foods, eating clean, you know, all those kinds of things. And that was really attractive to me because it felt so much less diety. But really, I didn't start to reconsider that or really reconsider any of this very deeply until five years ago when my older daughter was born. And this is where the story takes a little bit of a weird left turn, but Violet was born with a rare congenital heart condition. And what that meant was when she was one month old, she almost died and she went through some really intense medical trauma and she completely stopped eating. And so suddenly after thinking for so long that I knew lots about food and healthy eating and that you know I was going into this pregnancy doing everything right, eating organic, blah blah blah, prenatal yoga, going into breastfeeding, thinking, you know, I'll just get the best lactation consultant, I know I'm going to figure out the best plan here. Suddenly I realized there really isn't a plan. There really isn't an expert who can fix all this for us, who can make food make sense. And I had to figure out how to make food feel safe to my baby, who was this traumatized little kid who couldn't understand why I'd put anything near her mouth. And I realized, you know, how am I making food safe for her when so many of us don't feel that way? And so it was really, you know, it was this extreme experience, but it kind of pushed me deep outside the whole paradigm of how we usually think about food and had me really reconsidering kind of everything I knew. And so that's what led me to the book. So
0: um, in the chapters of the book, I think it's really wonderful how you weave this story of bringing home a baby and, you know, thinking, here I am, I'm going to be the the mom that does it all,
2: breastfeeding,
0: and then very quickly into the situation, you're facing this trauma. And you do a really beautiful job of walking us through the story of Violet's early years, as well as researching how different people handle food in their life and how for so many of us, food kind of is traumatic and yeah. is something that every day, you know, it's something we all have to do. Mm-hmm. It's not like some things that we can give up, you right. know, we, mm-hmm. everyone does actually need to eat. Yep. Um, yeah. And so you really walk us through how different, you know, the different areas in which people struggle different, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word diseases, but they are kind of looked at, I think, mm-hmm
2: in the DSM
0: is diseases right? right and how different people handle it and then how you're kind of at the same time trying to introduce violet to food in a way where she can have a healthy relationship with it
2: right right yeah it's a lot and i i think you're right i think it's not that it's easy to deal with something like a substance abuse addiction because it absolutely isn't but the solution is clear. Abstinence is the right approach. And you know we know this from lots of different research. Moderation doesn't usually work for someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict. But with food, it's a completely different thing. You know we often talk about being addicted to food. But really what we are is stuck in this feeling like we don't have permission to eat the foods we want to eat, feeling really bad about that and having to reckon with, but still like every three hours, our bodies tell us to eat because that's biology. That's how we're programmed to work. And so you have to face this thing head on every few hours throughout your day. And that's, it's really loaded for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I was thinking while uh, reading your book, just how much judgment about food goes back, you know, to biblical times,
2: you know, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm.
1: This is unclean, that, and just how much guilt about food is embedded in our culture. I think even, you know, prior to the, the diet craze that, you know, you talk about uh, coming up in like the seventies and eighties, I remember the, I, thought, I don't know if it was special K, but the first commercial I can remember related to food and body image was if you can pinch an
2: inch. Oh yes. Tyler I remember Reed, those commercials.
0: I remember, I remember like the little ruler, right? Yeah. I think there's like a little ruler around a waist, image of a waist or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and
2: showing somebody pinching an inch. And now yeah. I think like, wow, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I would hope we can all pinch an inch. Like yeah, right. <laughs> if you can't, it's a little bit terrifying for adult people to not have that to spare. But I know, okay, like go if you ahead.
1: pinch an inch, you're, you're probably no longer among the living. But, but uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, just thinking about so much of that guilt About food and diets, how do we start trying to nurture our bodies with food? And how do we start thinking in a more healthy way about what we're eating?
2: Well, I think, you know, gosh, if I knew the answer, the book would be selling way better. No, (laughs) uh, I think, you know, it has to start with us recognizing that we're actually the experts on our own bodies. You know, that's what really worked for Violet, was when I understood. Well, while, of course, it wasn't sustainable for her to keep refusing to eat, she had this really good reason for not eating. She was traumatized by all the stuff she'd been through. Anything coming to her mouth felt scary. And I understood, OK, like that's actually a reasonable response for a baby to have to a traumatic experience. We have to let her heal from that and then rediscover that she can trust food, that she can trust her body, that it's not going to hurt her the way it felt like it was hurting her in the early weeks of her life. And I think that's, I really am using her story in the book as a metaphor because I think, you know most of us have gone through some process of disconnecting from our bodies, no longer feeling like we can trust ourselves to make the right decision around food. And most of that is because we're getting all this messaging from diet culture that tells us over and over and over, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. If you feel hunger, it's a bad thing. If you, you know, why can't you be satisfied with this totally reasonable portion of a salad we just gave you? Like, no, you're actually just hungry for more food. And we've stopped thinking of ourselves as really being able to trust what our bodies are telling us. And often it's gotten so bad, we aren't even hearing the signals from our own bodies. You know, for a lot of people in the throes of an eating disorder, they're not hearing hunger and fullness cues, the way just the way Violet had stopped hearing them. And so you do have to go through a process of healing, of probably overeating for a time while you reconnect to that hunger and fullness, of really learning that whole process with your body. But you can get to a place where, actually... Your body was born knowing that when it was hungry, it know, babies, when they're healthy, know when they're full. They don't need to be told to stop breastfeeding or stop drinking a bottle. They naturally regulate that. And so we all have that in us, but it's a culture that's told us not to trust that. And that's what we have to get away from.
0: And I think a lot of that comes from the disconnect between eating to feel healthy and well and to be able to function, have our brains function well throughout the day, And what we look like on the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was reading your book, it brought me back to, um, I have two children and my oldest is my daughter. And when she was about nine months old, I started to be told by the pediatrician that she didn't weigh enough. Mm. And, you know, when you go to the pediatrician, starting from your first visit, actually, I think when they're born, you know, they, they measure their length. They, they take their weight they measure their wrists their heads you know all sorts of stuff and then as you take them to all of their appointments they start this little graph
2: mm-hmm, you your know,
0: mm-hmm. so every time you go to the doctor's office there they go putting these little dots on the graph and you know of course you want your child to be average or whatever right, right. on the graph and if they're too tall the dot gets above the graph and if they're too short it goes below and you know as a parent who particularly with your firstborn, you think you're going to kill them all the time anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Go into the pediatrician and have them say, you know, like, essentially you're not feeding your child enough. Right, right.
2: Which they're babies, like, you know, you don't. there's not that many things you have to do for them. Right, it's like all you're supposed to right. be doing. So yeah. to feel like you're messing it up is horrible.
0: Right. Yeah. They wanted me to start feeding her more, particularly with formula. Mm-hmm. And that just felt like a real failure to me because I was breastfeeding at the time. Mm-hmm. And I called my sister, who happens to be a pediatrician, and she very quickly said to me, like, you know, Emily, how tall are you? And I said five one. How tall is Rachel's dad? <laughs> five eight. Like, you know, she's
2: gonna be below normal. Right. <laughs> how big can this kid be? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was reading the book. I was thinking about that. And then I was, you know, there's a part where you talk about kind of the whole BMI thing, where people are supposed to have a certain body mass index and. You know, I think if I look at those charts, I'm supposed to weigh, like, 100 pounds or mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. and the age I am now, and the height I am, and everything, and I feel like some of that body image dysmorphia just comes from some of those basic things. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This I hear this over and over. I mean, in reporting the book, and just in talking to people since the book has come out, you know... <sighs> we have to track weight in a baby because there's not a lot of other ways to track how they're growing. And of course, babies do in fact get bigger. It's how growth happens. So it's like, yeah, we have to know that they're doing that, but we zero in on it from birth in this, like as if it's like this be all end all number of defining their health and how well they're doing and whether they're meeting milestones. And then of course, like your worth as a parent gets all tied up into that. And then we continue that along as children get older, and as we end up in adults, and we're really at a point where we use weight as a proxy, not only for health, but really for value for people. And that is an entire distortion of how we should be thinking about weight. And in fact, you know, I t- detail this research in the book, but when you look at the body mass index scale and what it was actually meant to do, first of all, it was developed by a Flemish astronomer in the 18- <laughs> 1700s. So I don't think he really had a good grasp on what my body is doing in 2018. Right. He yeah. developed it as a way to measure what he called the average man. So the average Flemish man from 400 years ago is maybe, you know, going to be a different size and shape than what we're dealing with today. So there's like so many problems with the fact that we've decided the scale defines health when that was actually never his goal. And, you know, it really is just a way of measuring the the literal size of people, not whether they're healthy, whether they're, you know, where they fall. And I'm not arguing that weight and health have no relationship. I mean, there is plenty of evidence showing that, Certain health conditions, risks increase as body mass goes up. But what we forget is, is that a causal relationship? Most of the data shows it's just a correlation. So the metaphor I love to use here is uh, Linda Bacon, who's a wonderful researcher in this field, she always says, you know, think about yellow teeth. Like, yes, lots of lung cancer patients have yellow teeth, but it's not that their teeth cause lung cancer. It's that both those things happen if you smoke cigarettes, And Mm -hmm. so there may be a different, the weight may be a symptom of some other problems in some cases, but to decide to solve those problems by prescribing weight loss would be like treating lung cancer with teeth whitening. Like you're not treating, you're just treating another symptom. You're not necessarily treating any actual underlying disease when weight and health are linked. And then more often than not, when we see things like it's more the situation, what you encountered with your pediatrician, which is we're focusing on weight and seeing that as somehow problematic when there's not actually anything wrong. When people come in all different shapes and sizes, there's a reason there's a hundred percentiles on the growth chart. Someone's got to be 98 and someone's got to be two. And it doesn't mean that those people are unhealthy. It means we fall along a spectrum of sizes. So we have to do a couple of things. We have to really increase our definition of what a quote normal body is or really do away with the idea of a normal body and accept that healthy bodies come in a really wide range of shapes and sizes. The other thing we have to do is we have to separate out thinking about food and thinking about weight, because what we also know is the diet, the research on dieting shows very clearly that trying to modify your weight by controlling your food is doomed to fail. Something like 80 to 95% of dieters regain all the weight they've lost, plus some within five years after dieting. So it's not a sustainable solution. So even if the data were to show really clearly, which it does not, but let's say for the sake of argument, the data showed that being at a higher body is terrible for your health. We don't have a good solution for that. We don't have a way to get people into smaller bodies that actually works. Unless you start talking about weight loss surgery, which is not a great option for most people. So we're really chasing the wrong problem. We're prescribing the wrong solution and we're making everyone feel terrible in the process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: And you know, the thing about healthy bodies, I, there's a uh, heart disease in my family and I remember, you know, I did a lot of reading about it and you know, there is that illusion that if you're skinny or, slim you're not going to be susceptible to heart disease when, right you know people who are skinny and slim dropped out of heart you actually get... all the time
2: and then we're doing a big disservice because you know so it goes both ways a lot of people who are in bigger bodies experience stigma from their doctors where you can go in with a runny nose and all they want to talk to you about is losing weight but then on the flip side someone in a smaller body might go in with some complaint and get it dismissed because the doctor thinks oh but you're skinny so you can't possibly that's not real chest pain okay. you're having yeah, and so again, it's like we're missing all these actual underlying issues. We're not treating people's health. We're treating people's appearance, and that's that's really that's really where we've gone astray there.
1: Yeah, and you know, I for a while, I when I first moved to Connecticut, I've been here about five years now. I worked at a health food store for a couple years, and it was fascinating to see people who were so obsessed. I, I forget the word that you use in your book about the obsession with healthy eating and clean eating.
2: Mm, yeah. I mean, orthorexia is, oh, the, is the eating disorder related to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know, just that obsession, <clears throat> eating clean and eating healthy and, and running marathons and everything mm-hmm. and, and how really, um, I, I just kind of saw a lot of it as people being afraid to die.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, they were That's trying to have this
1: perfect body. To to not only fit into the social norm that they wanted to fit into, but that they were afraid of dying. And when people who were living the, that clean life and eating well and had, you know, the, quote, perfect body shape were diagnosed with cancer, there was so much anger and rage that, you know, mm-hmm. everything. Right. And right. what the hell? I'm being gypped here. So, yeah. right. So I just feel like as a culture, there's the weight norm that we're dealing with and, and women, especially looking young Mm -hmm. and healthy all the time. And I kind of feel like we're just, we're not living anymore. Yeah.
2: It's tough because, you know. Like a lot of times, so the comments I get on Twitter are things like, "You don't want people to eat healthier. You don't want people to exercise." And it's like, that's not it at all. Like, I enjoy salad. I enjoy going for a run. Like these things can be great and can make our bodies feel really good, but it's the fact that we're pr- we're prioritizing these behaviors. Over everything else, what we're really doing is saying that eating should only ever be about fuel and about nutrition. And if you're not eating perfectly, it's not worth doing. And that's completely backwards. And it's not how humans evolved. I mean, when you look at a baby, when things are going well, a baby. Gets intense comfort and pleasure out of eating. It's supposed to be a joyful thing. If babies didn't experience pleasure, the human species would cease to exist. And if parents didn't experience pleasure feeding babies, we would all be dead because it's so much work to feed babies. So, you know, the joy and the comfort that comes through healthy eating is just as important as the nutritional content. But we've completely lost track of that. So, that's, you know, we have to shift the conversation back to where we're we're really prioritizing pleasure and comfort and safety and all of these things in our relationship with food, as well as like, sure, yes, nutrition, but often if you're giving yourself full permission to eat what you want to eat, nutrition is going to work itself out. Your body's going to naturally crave a variety of foods. Nobody if they feel like they have full permission, nobody only wants to eat brownies all day long every day. Like after three days, you'd be like, okay, enough already. I want something else. And that's normal regulation. So when we zero in on this, like, oh, we have to fight off diseases and we have to eat in this pure way, we're just getting like, we're distorting the whole conversation when it doesn't have to be that complicated.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you say in your book that the body, you know, talking about doing cleanses and stuff like that, our body our blood system, our liver, like it's naturally detox. Yeah, you
2: have kidneys, you have a liver. Yeah. If they're working well, you're detoxing all the time. It's that's called peeing part. and sweating, and <laughs> <laughs> it works great, and you don't actually need to speed that up. And, you know, to the extent that, sure, modern humans are being subjected to an onslaught of environmental chemicals that we can't control, and that may be causing problems, yeah, but you can't fix that through your eating. I mean, that's, you know, breathing in exhaust fumes, Of our fears about those big issues is what triggers some of this dysfunction. You know, we're thinking, like, God, there's so much I can't control about all these threats in the world, but I can control what I eat. But that's a misconception because once you start trying to really control what you eat, you realize it's really hard to do and it really sucks the joy out of it. You know, if you're eating so rigidly that you feel like you can't go out to lunch with a friend unless you analyze the menu ahead of time, you know, you can't go to a family holiday meal without feeling really stressed about what's going to be on the table. Like, that It shouldn't be that hard. It doesn't need to be that hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, for people who are listeners of the podcast, they'll know that I love food. <laughs> I love it. I love to cook. I love to read cookbooks. I <laughs> love to eat. And I, think, do. <laughs> and I think eating is a, it's an act of passion. That's yeah. how I look at eating, you know, and pleasure. And breaking bread with friends is like my favorite thing to do. If I could yeah. list my top 10, other than maybe reading, but... <laughs> And, and there's a, a part in the book where you write, a child can be conditioned by parental instructions to ignore her own instincts about how much to eat, but that conditioning doesn't always have the desired result. Studies have found that when children are rewarded for eating healthy foods, they tend to like those foods less and crave sweet treats more. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because the book really is about you know getting back to your own instincts. but I was recently with a family that had a, a young child. And you know, there was this whole experience at every meal. I spent several meals with them of about kind of like um trade-offs, you know, mm-hmm. if you eat cucumbers, then you can have a slice of orange because, you know, an orange was considered a sweet. and oh gosh, yes, you know, back and forth. And I thought, you know, that's where the the training of how we get up every day and look at food, a lot of that comes from a period in our lives from our family of origin that we don't really understand, you know, yeah. for so long that, you know, it was just a pattern that developed. So how do you recommend that people learn how to trust their instincts again?
2: Well, so first I want to say, we don't want this to turn into parent shaming and specifically mom shaming, because we're already getting enough of that from the diet industry. And, you know, I have a lot of empathy for the parents who are counting out bites of broccoli and trading cookies for carrots and doing all of that, because we're all just products of the same dysfunctional culture. We're all just you know, they're bringing their fears of, I want to raise a healthy kid and I want my child to eat well. And da they're bringing that to the table and they're counting out the bites of chicken because of that. So it comes from a good place. That being said, yeah, it's really problematic because every time you take over for your child and you say, no, you have to eat this in order to eat that. No, you have to eat this way. No, you're liking that pasta too much. I want you to have more of the salad. Every time you do that, you're telling your kid, Don't trust your body. Don't listen to the signals that you have that are loud and clear when you're a little kid because you haven't yet absorbed all this stuff. But no, don't ignore them. Start start disconnecting and listen to me instead. I know better than you. And that's problematic, not just for kids' relationships with food, but their relationships with their bodies in all sorts of ways. You know, if you think about what we want, especially our girls, but certainly our boys too, to know about consent, about body autonomy, like, we want them to really trust their bodies. And when their bodies give them signals that something's bad or dangerous or not feeling good, we want them to listen to that and get out of that situation. And that starts when the way we talk about food with little kids. Like we're building that into, you know, how they're gonna feel about their bodies for a lifetime. So again, not shaming parents, but yes, this is <laughs> this is kind of ground zero for doing this really important work. So you asked how we can sort of fix this. You know, for parents, what I like to suggest is um, there's a wonderful feeding therapist named Ellen Satter, and her theory is this model called the division of responsibility and feeding, where she says, okay, parents, you and your kid each come to the table with certain jobs, you're in charge of what foods get offered. So if you don't want them having cookies for dinner, there are no cookies on the table, you put out the foods you want them to have, you know, keeping in mind what they will actually enjoy as well, not just like punitive food, (laughs) Um, but you're in charge of what's offered And then they're in charge of how much they eat. They're in charge of, if you offer three foods, they may only eat two of them. They're in charge of that. They're in charge of picking and choosing from what's on the table. And they decide when they're full. And if you set it up that way, you're ensuring that they're regularly exposed to a wide variety of foods. So, you know, at some point over the course of a week, they're probably going to hit all the food groups, even though most kids will not do that at every meal. But you're continuing to reinforce that they should listen to their bodies, that they know how hungry they are, they know how full they are. And it also just makes meals way less stressful because you can actually eat your own food and not nickel and dime with them over every care. Right. Like you can stop talking about food at your table, which is incredibly freeing for most of us. So I think that's really important in terms of a way parents can start to shift their thinking and shift these conversations. And then once you start trying to do that for your kids or, you know, think about it that way in terms of how parents should handle things with kids, you realize there's a division of responsibility with yourself and food too. And so you're in charge of what foods your body is offered, but you listen to your body about how hungry or full you are. And then the other division of responsibility is you leave weight up to your body. Your weight, what your body will sort out, what weight you're supposed to be, you just focus on eating well and listening to those hunger and fullness cues, and then your body will sort the rest of it out. And I think that can be really freeing in terms of getting away from nickel and diming with yourself, you know, because that's what we also do. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I want this third cookie or, oh, I haven't eaten a salad all week. Why don't I want that salad? It really doesn't sound good today because it's six degrees outside. And you know, <laughs> whatever reason, it's not, you know, I'd rather have something more hearty. And if you can trust yourself to actually like, trust your body to actually have a pretty good handle on things, you can listen to those cues. You can know that, oh, yeah, you know, after a week of eating this way, I'm going to want to eat differently. You know, a lot of us go on vacation or around the holidays. We enjoy big festive meals. We don't have to go on a cleanse in January. We just naturally sort of are like, all right, you know what, the cookies, I'm done with them. Like, I'm ready for something else. That's just normal. And those patterns will emerge and you can trust them to emerge. But only if you've really given yourself permission to listen to your body and eat what you're hungry for and really taken your focus off the weight loss game, which is Hard, really hard. Um, and, and and everyone's struggle is going to look different there. You know how how much you can give yourself that permission, how long it takes. And we're also all going to mess it up from time to time. You know, like I still we practice division of responsibility. Our daughters are five and sixteen months, and this is how we feed them. And I still have meals maybe once a month where I think, good lord, I haven't seen these children eat anything that wasn't pasta, and I don't know how many meals. And you know. <laughs> And usually right when I start panicking and thinking, Oh, maybe I should start like, you know, pushing the broccoli a little harder, my kids will surprise me and that's the meal when they're like, no, I don't want this. I want this food instead. And just naturally, you know, they regulate themselves away. And it's it's really cool to watch it in practice when it's working well. I bet,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're just so bombarded. I mean, it's a multi billion dollar industry that oh, is trying oh. to get eat this and not that or do eat that and right it just we just get so bombarded with it yeah yeah Yeah, and it's
2: on both sides because you know I mean I mostly attack the diet industry but the food marketing industry is also to blame here because for sure we have food advertising making you know telling us that we want bigger and bigger portions making things more highly palatable more sugar more salt more fat and everything so foods are more reinforcing And that's a piece of this, although I'm quick to not demonize. I think the only way through that is to recognize you're getting this on both sides. You're getting diet marketers telling you to eat less. You're getting food marketers telling you to eat more. But they're really kind of telling you the same thing, which is don't trust yourself. Trust us. You know, don't listen to yourself. Listen to us. Eat how we're telling you to eat. And so once you kind of see that pattern, you can start to disengage from it and say, okay, yeah, I get you made these donuts taste really, really, really good. And you want me... You know, you've done your best in the labs to program me to want to eat the entire box of right. donuts, but I'm actually not hungry for a whole box of donuts. I'm actually good with however many donuts I feel like eating today or not having donuts or, you know, like, again, this it's not about the specifics and it's not about winning because you didn't eat the box of donuts. It's about what did your body actually want? And you can still hear that, but it is a lot of noise to cut through.
0: Yeah, well, you know, in the world of books and literature, we're we're hearing a lot also about people wanting to be able to read about people like them, which mm-hmm. is why it's so important that we have authors published from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true in the advertising industry, and I will say that, you know, after I read this book and started to really think about it, I was watching tv and trying to pay more attention to the images that come our way and there's some hope I feel like there are some advertisers particularly yes. there's this new bra coming out I think it's called the catalyst or something Ooh, which that's I think awesome. is a hilarious name for yeah. a bra I'm pretty sure that's what it's called and it was like wow they had women with all body shapes in this bra and I think that company third love and other bra companies doing yeah. the same thing and I thought that really gives me hope because part of the problem is feeling like, like for me particularly, particular, like I have a body of a woman who's had two babies, you know, mm-hmm. look like the body that it was before I had
2: two babies. I also have that body, yes.
0: <laughs> and it's yeah. really nice to see some women that have the same, you know. Yeah, yeah
2: representation is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are there other things that, that make you feel hopeful, Virginia, that you're seeing? I think there's been a real shift. I mean, I can tell you in the first 10 years of my career, as I was wrestling with this while writing all these weight loss articles, I would try to pitch every few months. I would try to pitch my editors, you know, let's report on this health at every size movement. Like, let's talk about how dangerous dieting is. And a lot of those pitches hit brick walls. Like they, or they'd say, yeah, sure, let's do that story. And then by the time the story ran, it had turned into yet another diet story but I'm seeing a big shift in what media is doing. You know, women's magazines are putting women, larger models on the cover. Tess Holliday was on the cover of Cosmopolitan recently. Um, You know, I think the women's media has really recognized that this is something we didn't get right and we can do better. We can, you know, and I'm not saying you won't still find weight loss content because you will, but I'm seeing much more acceptance of these stories um, and understanding that readers really crave this. I think on social media, I'm really troubled on Instagram by, you know, you can very quickly and especially I'm concerned about it for younger girls going on Instagram because you can very quickly find lots of people publishing their tips and tricks for maintaining their eating disorders or their weight loss. And, you know, there's a huge thrust of that on Instagram and it's really concerning. But on the flip side, there's also this whole body positivity movement on Instagram. You know, you and So there's a lot of, you know, there's people like me, there's writers, there's activists, there's a whole Movement of people trying to get these other messages out there. And so I think you can really curate your feed. I mean, I've definitely done it where if somebody's making me feel sort of like, oh, why don't I look like that? Or, you know, I'm like, oh, why am I following them? Quick, unfollow, unfollow. I have control over this. Yeah. Like, so that's sort of the great thing is you can really decide how much you're taking in, you know, that we have a lot more control over our media than we used to do, even though it's also harder to disconnect. Yeah. you know, versus like when I was a kid and watching commercials on TV because you could never get away from commercials, you know, like you can skip that now. But it is, you know, I, I can't say I'm entirely optimistic because I think there's real issues to be reckoned there. You know, I mean, on the other hand, when I was a kid, a lot of my diet content was limited to 17 magazine that showed up once a month in my mailbox, not on my smartphone 24 hours a day. So yeah you know, there's a push pull, but I think we can use these forces for good. I think there's a lot of people working on that. And I think, yes, a lot of companies and bigger brands are recognizing the need to be more responsible on this and to shift the conversation. And even if there's a part of that, that they're doing that just to profit, they're realizing they can sell more bras if they make them in more sizes, it still contributes to more representation. It still contributes to girls seeing a wider range of bodies. And that is unequivocally a good thing. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, and people writing books like yours, Virginia. So yeah. thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Sometimes this stresses an author out when we ask this question, but can we ask you what you're working on next?
2: Sure. Um, it does stress me out, but you can ask me. <laughs> um, so I don't know what the next book will be. I'm back to writing articles, which is, as a journalist, that's kind of my first love and the you know main part of my career. And I'm working on a couple of pretty exciting pieces, which now that I think about it, I'm not allowed to tell you the specifics because they haven't run yet. Um, but, you know, I'm continuing to report on diet culture. I'm continuing to report on our relationship with our bodies in a bunch of different ways. And, you know, I'm kind of following a couple different issues I'm excited about, the one of which could turn into the next book. So we'll see. Right. Okay.
0: We'll right. keep us posted and we'll definitely <laughs> let people know.
2: Great. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> and can you, you also are a podcaster. So can you let people know about your podcast and how they can find out more about you and your events?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I co-host the Comfort Food Podcast with my best friend, Amy Planjan, who is the blogger behind Yummy Toddler Food, which is another great resource for parents struggling with picky eating with kids. She's really great at figuring out how to make food fun, but not stressful for families. And so the Comfort Food Podcast, we talk, we kind of, she brings more of the like recipes and how to cook and that kind of thing. And I bring this sort of more diet culture analysis. And we really look at the struggles of feeding our families and feeding ourselves in ways that feel good. And so you can find that anywhere you listen to your podcasts, iTunes, Google, all those good places, um, or comfortfoodpodcast.com. And then for more of my work, you can go to virginia soulsmith.com and see all my articles and upcoming events. And of course, social media, I am at v underscore soulsmith, which is such an awkward handle now that I have to say it out loud a <laughs> lot. <loud. laughs> But that's what it is on Instagram and Twitter, so you can always find me in those places. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and for
1: the great work that you're doing and and giving us hope.
2: Oh, thank you. I love your podcast. I really appreciate it. And it's so fun to talk to fellow (laughs) Guilfordites. All right. right. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.